Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 280, Turning Points in Russian and Soviet History, Part 2. Last time, we began our review of the most influential turning points in Russian history. Today, we complete our journey with both Russian and Soviet nexus points. We begin on May 28, 1812, with the signing of the Treaty of Bucharest, ending the Russo-Turkish War of 1806-1812. As we heard in the series on Napoleon and Mikhail Kutuzov, the Treaty of Bucharest was a critical moment, as there was a growing fear that the French Grande Armée was about to invade Russia, and they needed to end the war with the Ottoman Empire. Napoleon sent emissaries to the Ottoman capital to try to convince the Turks to continue fighting against Russia, but it was met with deaf ears. There were a lot of good reasons for both sides to end this war. The Ottoman Empire was getting beaten on all fronts. The terms the Russians gave them at Bucharest were very generous. Had the French not been knocking on the border of Russia, there's a distinct possibility that Tsar Alexander I's army could have made it all the way to Constantinople. Even without that possibility, they could have lost a lot more territory than they did. For the Russians, the benefits were obvious. They knew that Napoleon was about to invade, so they needed to avoid a two-front war as well up as freeing up about 100,000 troops. Things were pretty dicey since Tsar Alexander approved the Treaty of Bucharest on June 11, 1812, 13 days before the French invasion. Had they not signed, it is entirely possible that Napoleon could have forced the Russians to sue for peace. This would have completely changed the course of history, not just for Russia, but for the whole of Europe. Of course, this leads to the next nexus point. Actually, there are two dates that represent one turning point, June 24th and December 14th, 1812. The first was the day that Napoleon crossed the Neman River, invading Russia, and the second was when his army was forced out of the country. The six months in between would inexorably change Russia forever. So, uh, which date was more important? In my opinion, it was the exit of the Grande Armée on December 14th that changed Russia forever. Obviously, Napoleon's invasion was a traumatic event. But when he left and the Russian army pursued him, what they saw in Europe opened their eyes. They saw that even the ordinary citizens lived better than the nobility of Russia. It would be the seed that would eventually lead to the Russian Revolution of 1917. It would begin with our next turning point. This extension of the defeat of Napoleon and the first seedling of revolt occurred on December 14, 1825. It was the date when the Decemberist revolt took place. As you may recall, the rebellion was led by junior officers who were members of the Northern Society of Decemberists, an offshoot of the earlier Union of Prosperity. These men, primarily highborn, were dissatisfied with the state of the average Russian compared to those citizens of Western European countries. 
After having their eyes opened in their pursuit of Napoleon and his army, they realized that their government, led by the Romanovs, was not benefiting the ordinary person or even the gentry. It was about enriching the top 1%, particularly the Tsar and his family. The dissatisfaction continued to fester in the years following the defeat of the French. The trigger for the revolt began with the death of Alexander I, or, if you believe the myth, the conversion of the Tsar into Fyodor Kuzma, the roaming Sturets. Alexander's presumptive heir, Constantine, had, unbeknownst to most people, privately declined the succession. His younger brother ascended the throne as Emperor Nicholas I. While some of the army had quickly sworn loyalty to Nicholas, a force of about 3,000 tried to mount a military coup in favor of Constantine. Of course, as we know, the attempted coup was crushed, and many of the men involved were either executed or sent into exile in Siberia. The influence of the attempted coup caused men like Alexander Herzen to place the profiles of executed Decemberists on the cover of his radical, per radical periodical, Polar Star. Alexander Pushkin addressed poems to his Decemberist friends. Nikolai Nekrasov, whose father served together with the Decemberists in Ukraine, wrote a long poem about the Decemberist wives. And Leo Tolstoy started writing a novel on that liberal movement, which would later evolve into war and peace. The seed of revolution had turned into a seedling and was now beginning to turn into a spreading weed throughout the Russian society. Nicholas I believed that he had to react to this growing sentiment of anti-autocracy. Because of that, we come to the next turning point in 1826, with the establishment of the Third Section. The Third Section of His Imperial Majesty's own chancellery was the secret police that would root out any subversive elements within Russia. This would lead to the exact opposite of what the Tsar expected. Instead of squashing the revolutionary enthusiasm, it would feed it because of the resentment towards the increased level of censorship. The next nexus point occurred in December 1852, the Ottoman Sultan, Abdulmajid I, confirmed the supremacy of France and the Roman Catholic Church over Christians in the Holy Land. This was done to create an alliance with France and Great Britain against Russian expansionism. This, of course, would lead to the disastrous Crimean War of 1853-1856. What is really sad is that the churches worked out their differences with the Ottomans, and actually came to an agreement. Both the French emperor, Napoleon III, and the Russian czar, Nicholas I, refused to back down. The war could have been averted, but Nicholas's abject belief in the power of Russia post-Napoleonic war and fervent nationalism would severely damage his country's reputation in the eyes of the world. It would further fuel the anti-monarchist movement because of the high casualty rate. Had Nicholas, and to a lesser degree, Napoleon III, agreed to the deal between the Roman Catholic and Russian Orthodox churches, the Crimean War might have been averted. I say it might be because 
Great Britain and France were very concerned about the expansion of the Russian Empire, as it was at the cost of the weakening Ottoman Empire and encroaching on territories held by France and the British. Our next turning point was the Treaty of Aigun, signed on May 28, 1858. Since we discussed this just recently in episode 278, I'll just skim over this. The treaty that set the border between Russia and China was significantly disadvantageous to the southern neighbor. It would create tensions that almost led to a war between the two countries in the 1960s and 70s. The emancipation of the serfs in 1861 was an important event, but in my opinion, it was how they were freed with all the attached conditions. While technically the serfs were free, they had to pay for this so-called freedom. The land they were given was subpar, barely enough to survive, much less thrive. The nobility who owned the enslaved people were given government bonds to compensate them, minus any debts they owed, which oftentimes was pretty steep. No one really won, and it caused more consternation at all levels of Russian society. Had the reforms been more equitable for all sides, the internal societal strain might have been lowered, reducing the tension that would lead to revolutions in the coming decades. Because of the inadequacies of emancipation, a number of attempts on the life of Tsar Alexander II would occur, culminating in the successful assassination on March 13, 1881, our next turning point. It wasn't so much the murder of the Tsar that became a nexus point, it was the reaction to it by his son Alexander III. The new Tsar was shaken up by his father's brutal death, so much so that, in his opinion, he needed to strike back at the subversives who committed the crime. Anyone he thought was engaged in anti-Tsarist activities, whether in action, words, or even perceived thoughts, would be arrested. The new emperor believed that remaining faithful to the Russian orthodoxy, autocracy, and nationality, the ideology introduced by his grandfather, Emperor Nicholas I, would save Russia from revolutionary agitation. Instead, it would fuel it. The Narodnya Volya, the organization that plotted and carried out the assassination of Alexander II, was obliterated during the hunt for the killers. Alexander Yulianov, the older brother of Vladimir Lenin, would be executed for his role in the assassination, along with his four comrades, Pokhomi Andriushkin, Vasily Janalov, Vasily Ospanov, and Peter Shevriev. They were all hanged at Schisselberg on May 8, 1887. This would deepen Lenin's hatred of the Romanov autocracy, eventually leading to their end and the death of Nicholas II and his family. And when next turning point came on May 3rd, 1882, when the May laws against Jews were announced. As we mentioned last episode, Catherine the Great created the Pale of Settlement as a place for Jews to live and work. Alexander III viewed the Jewish population as the instigators of anti-autocratic activity within Russia and wanted them out. Temporary regulations regarding the Jews were supposed to last for five years, but they continued until 1917. This led to a mass exodus of Jews from Russia. 
It is estimated that over 2 million left the country, many making their way to the United States, Argentina, and an area under Ottoman rule, Palestine. Anyone who's seen Fiddler on the Roof has caught a glimpse into that time period. It would also serve to further radicalize those Russian Jews who would stay, like Leon Trotsky. 1905 would be filled with turning points in Russian history. The Russo-Japanese War, Bloody Sunday, mutiny on the battleship Potemkin, and the October Manifesto. All of these were examples of the incompetency of the government of Tsar Nicholas II. The defeat in the Russo-Japanese War pointed out how backward the Russian Navy was, as well as the incompetence of its military officers. This would gain the attention of the Germans, who believed that the flank of World War I would not be a significant obstacle. The poor showing was one of the impetuses for the protests that would happen in St. Petersburg in January 1905. This, along with the dissatisfaction of the working peasant class, those who were former serfs, led to the reactionary response that would be known as Bloody Sunday. The mutiny on the battleship Potemkin was partly due to the abhorrent conditions that the men on the ship were subjected to, as well as news of the losses at the Battle of Tsushima during the Russo-Japanese War. On June 27, 1905, Potemkin was at gunnery practice near Tendra Spit off the Ukrainian coast when many enlisted men refused to eat the borscht made from rotten meat infested with maggots. This would be the final straw for the men, especially when they were admonished by Ippolit Gilrovsky, the ship's second-in-command, who allegedly threatened to shoot crew members for their refusal to eat the tainted food. While the mutiny wasn't a watershed moment, it was another incident in 1905 that showed how disorganized and vulnerable the Tsarist government was. This would put a great deal of pressure on Nicholas II, which led to the October Manifesto. Officially, quote, the Manifesto on the Improvement of the State Order, unquote, was a document that served as a precursor to the Russian Empire's first constitution, which was adopted the following year in 1906. Although it seemed to provide for a consultative government, Nicholas almost immediately regretted signing it, working to take away any teeth it had, grasping onto this autocratic belief that Russia was his and no one had the right to tell him what to do. This, of course, would set into motion the events that would lead to the downfall of the Romanov dynasty. Our next critical moment was the formation of the Okhrana, the Russian secret police, on February 9, 1907. While the third section would be the first czarist secret police, the Okhrana was the culmination. It would not only spy on the people, it would be the blueprint for the Soviet secret police, starting with the Cheka. It would create a lot of double agents, many of whom would be found out about under the Stalin administration, something that would cost many their lives. Of course, Stalin himself was very likely to have been an informant. On February 22, 1917, we have another turning point with the strike at the Putilov plant in Petrograd. It would be the initial strike that would help take down the government of Tsar Nicholas II 
and begin the slide into the Russian Revolution and the ascension of the Bolsheviks seven months later. While this was the spark that lit the fire, there would be many sparks over the coming months. The fire was inevitable. The collapse of the Romanov dynasty would burn down. This would be our next turning point as Nicholas II would abdicate eight days later on March 2nd, 1917. Had he not, or had he not taken control of the military and been away from St. Petersburg, things may have taken a different turn. Could his presence have made a difference? Eh, probably not, but may have allowed a more robust government to form, which may have been able to counter the Bolshevik takeover. This brings us to an eight-day event that was the nexus point for the rise of the Bolsheviks, and that was the days between August 27th and September 4th, 1917, known as the Kornilov Affair. There are many turning points in Russian and Soviet history, but this one may rank number one as the stupidest decision ever made. General Lavra Kornilov took control of the Russian army when he was named commander-in-chief by Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky in July 1917. This was in reaction to the July Day protests that swept through Petrograd. Kornilov would mobilize troops outside of the capital to end any and all revolutionary behavior. Kerensky, for some reason, saw this as a threat to his government and ordered Kornilov to return to Petrograd and disband his troops. He refused. In what can only be described as a significant blunder, Kerensky decided to release many Bolsheviks from prison in August, which, in and of itself, wasn't an issue. What was the problem is that he armed them upon their release. This would come back to haunt him and lead to his eventual overthrow. Had the provisional government held firm and not released and given weapons to the Bolsheviks, it is very likely that they never would have had the firepower to take control of the government, and the Soviet Union would never have existed. Our next turning point occurred on October 25th, 1917, the old calendar. It was the day that the Bolsheviks began the October Revolution and overthrew the provisional government. The lack of any resistance was the critical factor. The Bolsheviks were not very large in number, but they did have one thing that gave them the edge over their opponents, decisive leadership. Had anyone else stood up to them in a forceful way, they never would have succeeded. The signing of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was our next turning point, which occurred on March 3, 1918. It took Russia out of World War I and gave up a tremendous amount of territory, but it allowed the Red Army to strengthen, which in turn allowed it to eventually win the Russian Civil War. Without that treaty, the Bolsheviks would have been highly unlikely to have held on to power. We move four years into the future with the signing of the Union Treaty, a document that formed what became the Soviet Union on December 30th, 1922. This would last until December 26, 1991, a total of 69 years. The treaty would solidify the claims of the Bolsheviks for control of this immense country. 1928 presents us with three turning points. The start of the first five-year plan, 
the beginning of the collectivization of Soviet farms, and the arrest of Leon Trotsky. The five-year plan was aimed at turning the Soviet Union to an industrial power, something that, had it not been done, would have allowed Nazi Germany to take the country when it invaded in 1941. The collectivization of the farms cost millions of lives, but was part of the five-year plan. Both changed Russia's and all countries' fundamental nature under the USSR banner. The arrest of Leon Trotsky on January 17, 1928, ended any threat to the authority of Joseph Stalin and would be countless tens of thousands under the watchful eye of the NKVD. Another threat to Stalin was eliminated on December 1, 1934, another nexus point. The assassination of Sergei Kirov would remove the last danger or perceived threat to Stalin. A supremely charismatic and powerful Bolshevik, Kirov had to go. There is debate as to Stalin's role in the murder, but he was the one man who benefited above all. The key to this being a significant turning point is the subsequent start of the Great Purge, which cost the lives of one million people between 1936 and 1938. Our following three turning points involved the Soviets and Nazi Germany. The first occurred on August 23, 1939, with the treaty with the signing of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, also known as the Treaty of Non-Aggression between Germany and the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. It shocked the world at the time, but it served as a time when the Soviet Union could shore up its still weak military, as they knew it was only a matter of time before Hitler ordered the invasion of the country. That would occur on June 22, 1941, with Operation Barbarossa. Over 10 million combatants would be involved in the coming war, with the Germans suffering 1 million deaths and the Soviets losing 4.5 million. And this doesn't even come close to estimating the civilian losses that would come about. The loss of men in the ensuing war would not be recovered for decades. The losses would culminate in our next turning point, which occurred in 1943, and that was the failure of the Nazi Wehrmacht to take Stalingrad. Many view this as not only a turning point in Soviet history, but the event that proved that Germany could and would be defeated. The surrender of the Sixth Army by Field Marshal Paulus occurred on February 2, 1943. With the war over, we come to our next nexus, the failure of the Berlin blockade of 1948 and 49. The Soviets believed they could split the Western allies and drastically weaken Germany by denying access to Berlin. They did not count on the West resolve and the Berlin airlift success. It was a significant rebuke of Stalin's policy and would lead to West Germany joining NATO in 1955. March 5, 1953, the day Joseph Stalin died, is another obvious choice for a turning point. It would end the fear tactics that the Soviet leader used for decades. For a few months, there was uncertainty as to who would take the mantelpiece from Stalin, with Lavrenti Beria stepping up at first. But with his arrest and December execution, that would not occur, which, in and of itself, is another turning point.
Stalin's shadow over all Soviet life would begin to deteriorate with a speech given by Nikita Khrushchev on February 25th, 1956, known as On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, popularly known as Khrushchev's Secret Speech. It would repudiate many of Stalin's repressive policies, precipitating the ideological split with communist China. The Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962 would change things forever between the USA and the USSR, as well as causing the eventual ouster of Nikita Khrushchev two years later. These two turning points would lead us to the Brezhnev era of stagnation. Within that period, another turning point would occur with the signing of the SALT I Treaty and the beginning of detente in 1972. SALT I led to the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty and an interim agreement between the two countries. This would help lower tensions between the U.S. and USSR and lead to SALT II. The U.S. Senate, though, would not ratify the treaty in protest of another turning point, the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which occurred on December 24, 1979. It would last for little more than nine years, ending with the Soviet troop withdrawal, which ended on February 15, 1989. It would cause the rise of the Taliban and Osama bin Laden, eventually leading to the catastrophic events of 9-11. My next turning point may seem like an inconsequential moment, but it isn't. It was the Gorbachev-led anti-alcohol campaign that began in 1985. Many of you know alcohol has a long relationship with the Russians, going back to the days of Vladimir the Great. But that is not what makes this particular campaign as influential as it was. The Soviet government actually derived a large chunk of its funding from the taxes generated from alcohol sales. This massive reduction in revenue significantly affected the deficit that the country was facing. It would never recover financially. This decision by Mikhail Gorbachev would lead to our last two turning points. The first is August 1991, attempted overthrow of Mikhail Gorbachev. While he and his family were on vacation in Crimea, a group of senior communist figures, the quote-unquote Gang of Eight, calling themselves the State Committee on the State of Emergency, launched a coup d'etat to seize control of the Soviet Union. It was both dangerous and, in the end, a laughable attempt to reverse the many reforms Gorbachev had ordered over the previous six years. Ultimately, it failed, but its immediate beneficiary would be Boris Yeltsin. While he had opposed Gorbachev in the past, his rallying support from the people of Moscow would save his rival. This would, of course, lead to our last turning point, the resignation of Mikhail Gorbachev and the end of the Soviet Union on December 25th, 1991. I've shared my views on the many whys of the collapse of the USR. Financially, it was destitute. The way it collapsed and the lack of financial support from the West would lead to the situation in Ukraine and Russia today. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Join me next time when we talk about something that I think has a lot to do with what's going on in Ukraine, and that is we're going to discuss the Russian conflicts that occurred after 1991, including Ukraine, of course, Chechnya, and Georgia. 
So until next time, das vidanje i spasiba za venjamanja.